Chapter Four of the Jewel by Anton Chekhov, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The deacon was very easily amused and laughed at every trifle till he got a stitch in his side, till he was helpless. It seemed as though he only liked to be in people's company because there was a ridiculous side to them and because they might be given ridiculous nicknames. He had nicknamed Samolenko the Tarantula, his orderly the Drake, and was in ecstasies when on one occasion von Koren spoke of Laevsky and Nadezhda Fyodorovna as Japanese monkeys. He watched people's faces greedily, listened without blinking, and it could be seen that his eyes filled with laughter and his face was tense with expectation of the moment when he could let himself go and burst into laughter. He is a corrupt and depraved type, the zoologist continued, while the deacon kept his eyes riveted on his face, expecting he would say something funny. It is not often one can meet with such a non-entity. In body he is inert, feeble, prematurely old, while in intellect he differs in no respect from a fat shopkeeper's wife who does nothing but eat, drink and sleep on a feather bed and who keeps her coachman as a lover. The deacon began guffawing again. Don't laugh, deacon, said von Koren. It grows stupid at last. I should not have paid attention to his insignificance, he went on, after waiting till the deacon had left off laughing. I should have passed him by if he were not so noxious and dangerous. His noxiousness lies first of all in the fact that he has great success with women, and so threatens to leave descendants, that is, to present the world with a dozen Laevskys, as feeble and as depraved as himself. Secondly, he is in the highest degree contaminating. I have spoken to you already of Vant and Beer. In another year or two, he will dominate the whole Caucasian coast. You know how the mass, especially its middle stratum, believe in intellectuality, in a university education, in gentlemanly manners, and in literary language. Whatever filthy thing he did, they would all believe that it was as it should be, since he is an intellectual man of liberal ideas and university education. What is more, he is a failure, a superfluous man, a neurasthenic, a victim of the age, and that means he can do anything. He is a charming fellow, a regular good sort, he is so genuinely indulgent to human weaknesses, he is compliant, accommodating, easy and not proud. One can drink with him and gossip and talk evil of people. The masses, always inclined to anthropomorphism in religion and morals, like best of all the little gods who have the same weaknesses as themselves. Only think what a wide field he has for contamination. Besides, he is not a bad actor, and is a clever hypocrite. 
and knows very well how to twist things round. Only take his little shifts and dodges, his attitude to civilization, for instance. He has scarcely sniffed at civilization yet. Ah, how we have been crippled by civilization! Ah, how I envy those savages, those children of nature who know nothing of civilization! We are to understand, you see, that at one time, in ancient days, he has been devoted to civilization with his whole soul, has served it, has sounded it to its depths, but it has exhausted him, disillusioned him, deceived him. He is a Faust, do you see? A second Tolstoy. As for Schopenhauer and Spencer, he treats them like small boys, and slaps them on the shoulder in a fatherly way. Well, what do you say, old Spencer? He has not read Spencer, of course, but how charming he is, when with light, careless irony he says of his lady friend, She has read Spencer, and they all listen to him, and no one cares to understand that this charlatan has not the right to kiss the sole of Spencer's foot, let alone speaking about him in that tone, sapping the foundations of civilization, of authority, of other people's altars, spattering them with filth, winking jocosely at them, only to justify and conceal one's own rottenness and moral poverty, is only possible for a very vain, base and nasty creature. I don't know what it is you expect of him, Kolya," said Samoylenko, looking at the zoologist, not with anger now, but with a guilty air. He is a man the same as everyone else. Of course he has his weaknesses, but he is abreast of modern ideas, is in the service, is of use to his country. Ten years ago there was an old fellow serving as agent here, a man of the greatest intelligence, and he used to say, Nonsense, nonsense, the zoologist interrupted. You say he is in the service, but how does he serve? Do you mean to tell me that things have been done better because he is here, and the officials are more punctual, honest, and civil? On the contrary, he has only sanctioned their slackness by his prestige as an intellectual university man. He is only punctual on the 20th of the month when he gets his salary. On the other days he lounges about at home in slippers and tries to look as if he were doing the government a great service by living in the Caucasus. No, Alexander Davidich, don't stick up for him. You are insincere from beginning to end. If you really loved him and considered him your neighbour, you would, above all, not be indifferent to his weaknesses. You would not be indulgent to them, but for his own sake would try to make him innocuous. That is? Innocuous. Since he is incorrigible, he can only be made innocuous in one way. Von Coram passed his finger around his throat. Or he might be drowned, he added. In the interests of humanity, and in their own interests, such people ought to be destroyed. They certainly ought. What are you saying? 
muttered Samoylenko, getting up and looking with amazement at the zoologist's calm, cold face. Deacon, what is he saying? Why, are you in your senses? I don't insist on the death penalty, said von Koren. If it is proved that it is pernicious, devise something else. If we can't destroy Levski, why then, isolate him, make him harmless, send him to hard labor. What are you saying? said Samoylenko in horror. With pepper, with pepper, he cried in a voice of despair, seeing that the deacon was eating stuffed aubergines without pepper. You, with your great intellect, what are you saying? Send our friend, a proud intellectual man, to penal servitude? Well, if he is proud and tries to resist, put him in fetters. Samoylenko could not utter a word, and only twiddled his fingers. The deacon looked at his flabbergasted and really absurd face, and laughed. Let's us leave off talking of that said the zoologist. Only remember one thing, Alexander Davidich. Primitive man was preserved from such as Laevsky by the struggle for existence and by natural selection. Now our civilization has considerably weakened the struggle and the selection, and we ought to look after the destruction of the rotten and worthless for ourselves. Otherwise, when the Levskys multiply, civilization will perish and mankind will degenerate utterly. It will be our fault. If it depends on drowning and hanging, said Samoylenko, damnation take your civilization, damnation take your humanity, damnation take it. I tell you what, you are a very learned and intelligent man, and the pride of your country, but the Germans have ruined you. Yes, the Germans, the Germans. Since Samoylenko had left Dorpat, where he had studied medicine, he had rarely seen a German, and had not read a single German book. But, in his opinion, every harmful idea in politics or science was due to the Germans. Where he had got this notion he could not have said himself, but he held it firmly. Yes, the Germans, he repeated once more. Come and have some tea. All three stood up, and putting on their hats, went out into the little garden, and sat there under the shade of the light green maples, the pear trees, and the chestnut tree. The zoologist and the deacon sat on a bench by the table, while Samoylenko sank into a deep wicker chair with a sloping back. The orderly handed them tea, jam, and a bottle of syrup. It was very hot. Thirty degrees Riamor in the shade. The sultry air was stagnant and motionless, and a long spider web, stretching from the chestnut tree to the ground, hung limply and did not stir. The deacon took up the guitar, which was constantly lying on the ground near the table, tuned it, and began singing softly in a thin voice. Gathered round the tavern were the seminary lads but instantly subsided, overcome by the heat, mopped his brow and glanced upwards at the blazing blue sky. Samoylenko grew drowsy. The sultry heat, the stillness, and the delicious after-dinner languor 
which quickly pervaded all his limbs, made him feel heavy and sleepy. His arms dropped at his sides, his eyes grew small, his head sank on his breast. He looked with almost tearful tenderness at von Korn and the deacon, and muttered, The younger generation, a scientific star and a luminary of the church. I shouldn't wonder if the long-skirted Alleluia will be shooting up into a bishop. I dare say I may come to kissing his hand. Well, please God. Soon a snore was heard. Von Korn and the deacon finished their tea and went out into the street. Are you going to the harbour again to catch sea gudgeon? asked the zoologist. No, it is too hot. Come and see me. You can pack up a parcel and copy something for me. By the way, we must have a talk about what you are to do. You must work, Deacon. You can't go on like this. Your words are just and logical, said the Deacon, but my laziness finds an excuse in the circumstances of my present life. You know yourself that an uncertain position has a great tendency to make people apathetic. God only knows whether I have been sent here for a time or permanently. I am living here in uncertainty, while my wife is vegetating at her father's and is missing me, and I must confess my brain is melting with the heat. That's all nonsense, said the zoologist. You can get used to the heat, and you can get used to being without the deaconess. You mustn't be slack. You must pull yourself together. End of chapter 4